0: Let's join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're standing on those promises of yours. Thank you so much for them. And thank you that as we look ahead now in the book of Revelation, we can continue to stand on your promises that are there. Sometimes some would say they're, they're threats, uh, and they very well may be for some. But thank you that we have your promises here, and we have a great privilege to be able to help others to get out from under the threats. So we thank you for this now. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together Revelation chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. It's only 11 verses long this evening. It has to do with a little scroll. I'll read these verses in just a moment. Just as we did after the seal judgments, here after the sixth trumpet there is an interlude or a parenthesis, or an interruption, if you will. Uh, just something to get us to think about other things that are going on before and after, but the chronology of this whole thing, what's pushing this are 21 judgments. They're the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. 21 of them, and interspersed between them, are a number of what some would call interruptions, but really are interludes, and we'll see about that in just a moment. Revelation chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. The Apostle John, of course, is writing this, and he says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it my stomach was made bitter and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This chapter as I said is kind of an interruption to the flow to the chronology of everything that is going on. The 7th trumpet will not be blown until the next chapter and verse 15 of chapter 11 And even then, there will be a lengthy gap, at least chapters-wise in the book of Revelation, in that sequence. Finally, at the beginning of chapter 16, after chapter 15 leads up to it again and again, it's as if the suspense builds and builds, and then it doesn't happen for a while, and then it builds again, and then it happens. That's what's happening in chapter 15. But finally, at the beginning of chapter 16... The bold judgments, the last seven judgments, actually begin as they come out of the seventh trumpet judgment. Word that comes to mind as we read this chapter and as we look at the entire book of the Revelation is the word bittersweet. It's a word that describes our complete study so far and will continue to describe our study. Bitter sweet. Nowhere is it more obvious than in this chapter. John is told to take a little scroll... At first, it's sweet in his mouth, but later, it's bitter in his stomach. Bitter-sweet is defined in the dictionary as bitterness and sweetness combined, pleasure mixed with overtones of sadness. It is sweet to think of the ultimate victory that God guarantees for us, but it's bitter to think about how some are going to have to face the tribulation and then all of eternity without the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we get a a glimpse of that bitterness and that sweetness all at the same time. It's certainly sweet for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who knows what's happening, who can truly stand on the promises. But it's bitter when we stop to think about what goes on with others. Let's try to personalize this a little bit if we can. Because sometimes I think we think of the book of Revelation as something that's going to happen way, way off in the distance at some point, and it's going to affect a a bunch of peoples that sometimes we think of them as the lost or the inhabitants of the earth or the pagans or the the heathen, and it's not going to happen for a long, long time to come. But remember this. The events of all this could be kicked off with the rapture tonight, couldn't they? Tonight or Tomorrow. And let's put a name to some of those people who are not going to be included in that rapture, who will be here on the earth. Maybe the Lord is placing the name of a relative or a friend or a neighbor or a fellow student or a teammate or someone else that you know very, very well. Uh, This is meant for us to take very, very personally. It's not something that is very remote in the in the by and by, something's going to happen to a group of lost people. No, any day, any minute, something's going to happen to people we know. Something's going to happen that causes this whole experience to be bitter sweet. So we're putting names to these people. You're going to heaven if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's sweet. But the person whose name is in your mind right now is not. And that's bitter. Let's look at the unusual action of the mighty angel who's described for us in chapter 10, verses 1 to 4 question may have come to your mind, who is the mighty angel? Did anybody question that? Who is this mighty angel? There are, as many times takes place in the book of Revelation, there are schools of thought with regard to whom the angel is. There are two possible answers that surface the most. Strong case can be made for either one of them. Some believe the mighty angel is Jesus. Now, why would they believe that? Uh, If you look at that description again in verses 1 through 4, you'll see the description is quite similar to a description of what can only be Jesus in Ezekiel chapter 1. Also a description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. There are many similarities between the description. Even the expression like a lion roaring in verse 3 could be a reference to Jesus, the Lion of Judah. And it's easy for me to see why some people will say that this is Jesus. Jesus. But some believe that it is another one of the great angels of heaven that it isn't Jesus. I've concluded that it may be either one of those, but I certainly uh, when I come to a conclusion it is that it's another great angel, that it's not Jesus who's being spoken of here. And we'll see that as we go along, I believe. There are nine aspects of this angel that are seen just in these few verses. First, he is identified as another mighty angel. Now, if you think of that, another mighty angel. The Greek word for another is the word alon. It means another of the same kind. Since Jesus is absolutely unique, in my mind, that eliminates him from consideration right at the outset. This is another mighty angel, another of the same kind. Jesus is unlike any other being that we know of or have ever heard of or that ever existed. If Jesus had been meant here, then the word that would have been used would not be alon, but it would be heteros, another of a different kind. That would have been more appropriate. Another of a different kind of a mighty angel, if they wanted to use that term angel to describe the Lord Jesus. Now, if we were to go back to chapter 5, verse 2, and I won't take the time to do that tonight, but if we were to go back there, we would see the introduction, first of all, to a mighty angel. It says, a mighty angel, and that was the one that was proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. That was a mighty angel. That was the first reference to a mighty angel. This is another mighty angel of the same kind, and I believe that that's the reference that is involved here. It's been John's custom to specifically designate Jesus whenever he's mentioned in the book of Revelation. He has a lot of titles and descriptive names for the Lord Jesus, none of which are ever an angel in the book, That's, which is another reason why I believe this is not Jesus. This is another angel. He's called, and if you can read fast or listen fast, he's called all of these things in the book of Revelation, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, the son of man, the first and the last, the living one, the son of God, the holy one, the true one, The amen, the beginning of God's creation, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb, the faithful and true, the word of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's never called an angel. When they want to talk about Jesus, they use one of the names that describe him that is clearly the Lord Jesus. One of the commentators states that in the apocalypse or in the revelation, angels are always angels. So you will read, if you're reading commentaries, you will read that there are a number of people who believe that this mighty angel is Jesus because the description is so closely that of Jesus in other places, but I don't believe that it can be referring to Jesus. There's something else here, too. As we say, there are nine aspects of the angel presented to us. One, he's identified as another mighty angel. Secondly, the angel is pictured coming down from heaven, And it doesn't say it immediately, but we learn later in the chapter that he's coming down to earth. So he's coming down from heaven to earth. He has his left foot on the land and his right foot on the sea. That means he's not stopping in the air. And I'm not ready to add another coming of Jesus to earth that isn't even hinted at elsewhere in the Bible. We know that he's coming back again at the rapture in the air. We know that he's coming back after the tribulation. Uh, and he will set foot on the earth then, but I'm not ready to add another time that he's coming down here to the earth that there's no scriptural evidence for that. Thirdly, about the angel, it says he was wrapped in a cloud or robed in a cloud, as some will say, dressed, that was his attire. And to some, that's a strong suggestion that clouds belong to the attire of deity. That's one reason why some think that this may very well be Jesus. Jesus returning with a cloud of witnesses who have gone on before. But it also, the clouds signal a coming storm, and that could very well be any symbolism that is here. That could be the symbolism. Fourthly, it says there was a rainbow over or above his head. That pictures divine mercy, even in judgment, all the way back in Genesis it starts out the rainbow doing that for us. It says he has a face like the sun, That's how Jesus was described in chapter 1, verse 16. He had a face like the sun, except in chapter 1, verse 16, it says like the sun shining in full strength. I see a difference in that description. Sixthly, legs like pillars of fire. Again, if we look at the description in Revelation chapter 1, you could say that that's a description of Jesus again. Seventh, holding a little scroll that lay open in his hand. The one in chapter 5 initially was not open. You remember who was going to open the scroll, who is worthy, who can do this. This one is now open, and there's no question about that. And as we mentioned, one foot on the sea and one on land. And lastly, the nine aspects of this angel, it says he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And again, some will say, well, that's the Lion of Judah, that's Jesus. But again, I don't believe so. I think that one of the commentaries, Jameson Fawcett and Brown, summarizes this very, very well and removes, I believe, any of the confusion. They simply put it this way. The angel, as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, reflects his glory and bears the insignia attributed to him. And then it goes back to chapter 1 and back to chapter 4. And basically, this is an angel representing Jesus and some of his qualities, but it's not the Lord Jesus. Let's try to identify the little scroll. Can we identify exactly what that is? Uh, It's very significant to chapter 10. Is it the same scroll that we saw in chapter 5, verse 1? Is it the scroll that A huge amount of attention was given to who's going to be worthy to open this. And then the lamb, the lion, the Lord Jesus was able to do that. And with the unsealing of that scroll came the judgments, the seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment opened up into the trumpet judgments. So is it the same seal? And again, some will argue that it can't be the same scroll because there are two different Greek words used to describe them. In chapter 5, verse 1, The scroll is referred to as Biblion. Here in chapter 10, verse 2, it is referred to as Bibliardion. And so some will say it can't be the same scroll. I am not one of those that says that it can't be. I believe that it could very well be the same scroll. Bibliardion is the diminutive form of Biblion. It just means, if we were going to say the diminutive form, it's something that is larger that's gotten smaller. And with the scroll being opened, as far as it's been opened now, it very well could be a reference to it being smaller. It In fact, in chapter 10, verse 8, the word biblion is again used. So I don't believe from the argument that is set forth there, we can say that it is a different scroll. I think it's going to be the same scroll. Uh, there's other evidence for that, too, but I, I'm not going to get into that tonight. Some will say that we're two-thirds of the way through the scroll. What is left isn't as large as the original. Therefore, it can be referred to as the diminutive, as, as we see in the word bibliardion. Twice we read in this chapter that the scroll was open. It was in use. Just like the one in chapter 5 became useful by being opened. so is this one going to be useful. The little scroll in the mighty angel's hand was about to reveal some terrible judgments that are yet to come. Unfortunately, we're not going to know what they are because they were sealed. And we'll see that in just a moment. In fact, we'll see it right now. What do we make of the seven thunders? Wasn't that kind of unusual to see that, the seven thunders? We hear about the seals and the trumpets and the bowls or or vile judgments, but there are also seven thunder judgments in the book of Revelation. This is all we know about them, what we've just seen. These verses can be puzzling. If you look again with me back at verses 3 and 4, and you can see that there's, there's something going on there that is puzzling. Why would God include them in the Bible? Why would this happen? Seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, Apostle John says, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Don't you want to know what the seven thunders said? How many of you want to know? How many know? Just one. And no offense, I have my doubts. Because it's sealed. And in fact... We understand that there are different cults who believe they know, but they're not going to know. My question is, why did God include them in the Bible? By the way, guess what happened this morning in the second service toward the end? Uh, Sorry, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Uh, Do you understand why I said that? you understand the point that I'm trying to make by that? It's like saying, guess what? Sorry, I can't tell you. It's a teaser, and, and it may very really well be that. There are seven thunders. You can think about them. You can imagine what they are. Um, there are specific things God has chosen not to reveal to us until the time is right for whatever his reasons may be. One of my favorite verses is in Deuteronomy chapter twenty I've told you this before. It's the verse I can always fall back on when somebody asks me a question that I don't know the answer to. Say, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So when somebody asks me a question I don't know the answer to, I say, I believe that's one of those secret things that belongs to God. And someday there will be an answer, but not today. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. The Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's not obligated to tell us everything that is going on, everything that He's planning, everything that He's doing. He's got great reasons for not telling us. And all we know is that there's a little teaser here of these seven thunders. We don't know exactly what is going on. William Jennings Bryan once advised that when he's challenged by unbelievers to explain the mysteries of the Bible, he asks them in turn to explain the everyday occurrences on the farm. Now, you want to get real technical on some of these things? Well, you explain to me what's going on in the farm. How can a red cow eat green grass and give white milk that makes yellow butter? And the point that he makes from that is that a thing may be true even though you cannot explain how nor understand why. These apparently are seven more Judgments added to the other 21 so that there may very well be 28 judgments. Thunder often accompanies judgment in the Bible. The angel called out with a loud voice like the roar of a lion. What he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. When he, when he shouted, they spoke. It seems like this could be a veiled threat here as well. A veiled threat that sometimes can be more significant than a direct, explicit threat. For example, an explicit threat might be this. If you do that again, I'm going to send you to your room. That's explicit that they know what's going to happen. They probably would have been going to the room anyway because they can take their laptop there, they can listen to their music, they can watch their TV, they can do whatever they want to do. Um, But at least that's an explicit threat. A veiled threat might be something like this. If you do that again, that will become the sorriest day of your life. They have no idea what's coming, Uh, and that may be what's happening here. There are some who say that God doesn't reveal the thunder judgments to us because for those who are believers, it would be a shock To our system to see what else is going on. And to those who are not believers, they may do something very reckless as a result of hearing that. But for whatever his reasons, God wants us to know we don't know everything. There are things he's not revealing. There are things that if we stop to imagine what's going on, it could get into that point of being a veiled threat that even carries a lot more weight to this. What did the angel say? We're looking at verses 5 through 7 now. The angel said something very significant. He said, no more delay. No more delay. He went to a lot of trouble to reinforce this point. If you look at verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by... And, of course, again, to me this is not Jesus. Jesus would not be doing this. He would not have to do this. Swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. He's very serious about this point. He's making the point, no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet in the middle of chapter 11, the bold judgments will be poured out. The tribulation will come to a close with the return of Christ Chapter 16 will pick up the sequence of the bold judgments. And it says here, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. It says in the ESV or accomplished. It says in other translations. What's this mystery? This mystery in the scripture is always something previously hidden, but not revealed. It's not something that you've got to try to figure it out based on clues and evidence. It simply has not been revealed before. And now it is revealed. The prophets didn't really understand what was going to happen. They didn't know how God was going to end history and set up his kingdom. They didn't know the when or the how. But here's the point from this. No more delay. That's the answer to the question of the martyrs. Back in chapter 6, verse 10. How long, O Lord? Do you remember that? How long, O Lord? When is this going to be over? When will we be avenged? And the answer is, no more delay. What well, was John told to do something again? Very puzzling in verses 8 through 11. This little scroll was to be eaten. And there are some who take this literally and some who take this figuratively, and there's some who take it in both ways, um, that the eating of the scroll is really uh, done literally, but it means something more than just the eating of the scroll. It's ingesting God's word. The little scroll to be eaten, representing the word of God. If we look at other scriptures, a couple of samples, Psalm chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119:103 How sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth Or we could go to Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name O Lord God of hosts What is the significance of the sweet and the sour scroll To some, at first, the new details of the tribulation will be welcome news. But on reflection, full impact will be seen. The world will be under severe judgment. God's people, the Jews, will be under terrible persecution until God resolves it all. It is something that is very, very sour that will be going on, something that is very bitter will be going on in the midst of the sweet. One commentator put it this way, sweet because John, like all believers, wanted the Lord to act in judgment and take back the earth that is rightfully his and be exalted, honored, and glorified as he deserved. But the realization of the terrible doom awaiting unbelievers turned that initial sweet taste into bitterness. And there certainly is a sweet and a sour message in the Word of God. Listen, if you will, as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, in other words, that fragrance is putrid, it stinks to them. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. That's the fragrance aroma of Christ to God, who is sufficient, it says, for these things. If you look back in Revelation chapter 10 at verse 11, the recommissioning of John, and I call it a recommissioning, is something that is bittersweet for him as well. And I was told You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. His work was not yet done. He was being prophetic as God gave him that opportunity here. And there's more of it that is coming. One thing John illustrates for us is here when he obediently does what he's told. He ate the scroll. God's Word is not meant to decorate our tables. It's not meant to be a snack. It's not meant to be sniffed at or tasted or nibbled. It's meant to be eaten, digested, to become a real vital part of each one of us. It needs to be assimilated into our very beings. It needs to be meditated on. We all need to be serious eaters of God's Word. James Hamilton, who's written a fairly recent commentary on the book of Revelation, has two suggestions that I'd like to share as we close on how we can apply the teaching of chapter 10 in our lives. And I think what he has here is very significant, very significant, uh, practical, and relevant to today. First, he says, be confident that God is Lord of all and will accomplish his purposes. The angel stands on the sea and the dry land, reminding us that all things are under Jesus' feet. No terrorists, no rogue governments, no dictators, no usurpers of democracy, no kings, no tax collectors, no corrupt government officials, no hypocritical senators are going to stand in the way of God's accomplishing his purposes. If Russia puts a military base on Cuba, if terrorists strike the United States again, if democracy comes to an end in this country, God's purpose will still come to pass. God is Lord of history, and his will is going to be done. So first, be confident that God is Lord of all. He will accomplish his purposes. He is the supreme God. He is the sovereign God. And then secondly... We can know truth because God has revealed himself. We will never have exhaustive knowledge because only God is omniscient, but we can have reliable knowledge because God gave the scroll to Jesus who opened it, and then the angel gave it to John who ate it. John ate the scroll and prophesied, and we can trust what God has shown us about the things that must soon take place That expression takes us back to the first chapter of Revelation, the first verse. Be confident God is Lord of all, will accomplish his purposes. We can know truth because God has revealed himself. I don't know about you, but I am so glad he revealed the truth of the book of the Revelation. And I'm glad he did it in the way that he did. It forces us to study hard, and it forces us to realize that There are some who are going to look and not get exactly the same thing, and we love each other through that, and that's okay. Uh, But what is here and what we're all agreed on is extremely powerful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are confident that you're Lord of all. You will accomplish your purposes. We know truth because you've revealed yourself in your word, and you've told us, What is going to happen? We're able to read the final chapter. We thank you for that. It hasn't happened, but it may as well have, because it's absolutely certain. I pray that you'd help us to get back to thinking about that word bittersweet and not be content that it's sweet for us who are believers, knowing that it's bitter for others who may have to face this tribulation period and an eternity without the Lord Jesus Christ. May that motivate us, and may that give us incentive that we need to not think that you've left us here on this earth to enjoy ourselves, to have a good time, to get the best that we can get in enjoying leisure. But we're here to serve you and to serve others, and we thank you for the privilege you've given to us to be your ambassadors, to represent you to share things like this with others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.